All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. Now, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. As uh, our regulars know, if you're new with us, just to let you know, we've been working our way through this Gospel for the last few months. And uh, we, uh, we come today to the third major section. In chapters 1 through 10, we saw the revelation of the king. In chapters 11 through 13, we saw the rebellion against the king. And now in chapters 14 to 20, we see a section we're entitling the retirement of the king. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not retiring, uh, as you might think we're implying. It just simply means that in these chapters, we see him withdraw often from the crowds to spend time alone with his disciples. And there were several reasons for this. Um, Hostility was growing and Jesus didn't want to needlessly provoke his enemies that they would try to come and get him and take him by force to crucify him before his time. Number two, I believe he needed the last six months or so to really prepare himself for the cross. He was fasting more and more, alone with his father, more and more drawing strength for what was coming. Very important. And also, I think he was spending that time with his disciples to prepare them for when he would be taken from them and they would carry on this incredibly important work that he had begun going into all the world then and sharing the gospel with everyone because Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. Now, we talk about these times of withdrawal. Don't misunderstand. They're not times of inactivity because we're going to see that often the crowd followed Jesus. They found where he was trying to get some solitude. They, they kept finding him and keeping him from being alone with his disciples. But listen, he never ignored or rebuked them. He always unselfishly ministered to their needs in spite of his own need for some time of rest and solitude. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 14. It says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. This Herod was Herod Antipas, who was made ruler over the Galilean region at the death of his father, Herod the Great. You remember, Herod the Great was the one who had the uh, little uh, infant and toddler boys put to death in Bethlehem. When the wise men came, and uh, said to him, you know, we're looking for the king of the Jews. Well, Herod the Great had the title of king of the Jews. But he wasn't even Jewish. He was a descendant of Esau. He was, uh, he was an Edomite. All right? um, and the Jews chafed <laughs> under the fact that he, a non-Jew, was called king of the Jews. But when the wise men came and said, where is he? We have seen his star. Who was born king of the Jews? Uh, Herod was furious. He was a paranoid little guy about four foot eleven and just was just always killing people. In fact, killed several of his own sons thinking they were plotting against him. It was a saying actually that got started back then. It was safer to be one of Herod's pigs than his sons because he'd wipe his kids out all the time thinking that they were trying to take his throne away. So when Herod found out that someone had been born king of the Jews, he inquired of his wise men when the Messiah would be born and where, and they said in Bethlehem. So he sent his soldiers to Bethlehem and had all the uh, Jewish boys from two years old and under uh, murdered. So you all remember that story. Just having come past Christmas, we were all familiar with that once again. But 
this Herod is Herod Antipas. He's the Herod of, of this chapter. And as I said, he was the son of Herod the Great. His title, Tetrarch, means ruler over a fourth part. And the reason he was called a Tetrarch was because when Herod the Great died, uh, his kingdom was divided among, his, among four of his sons. So they each ruled over a fourth part. That's where they got the title Tetrarch. Now, Herod Antipas was not a great leader. In fact, he wasn't even a good leader. His rule was marked with deception and selfishness all over the place. And when Herod heard the miraculous things that Jesus was doing, he was sure that John had risen from the dead, John the Baptist. You see, Herod's conscience was troubling him. But instead of listening to his conscience, repenting, and giving his heart to Christ, instead he determined to kill Jesus just as he had killed John. Now, verses 3 through 12 form what's called a literary flashback, where Matthew interrupts the narrative he's recording to review the circumstances that surrounded John the Baptist's death. Verse 2 actually then is picked up again. The thought flows from verse 2 to verse 13. All right, Or from 2, you jump to then verse 13. It should read like this. This is the continuity of the thought here. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Verse 13. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Now, we'll get into that next time. But it was when Jesus heard that uh, Herod Antipas had been informed about his ministry that he departed and he went over to a deserted place on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You say, well, why? Was Was he afraid of Herod? Of course not. But he didn't want to provoke Herod into trying to crucify him before his time. One author put it this way, he said, Jesus came to give his life, but not at the edict of Herod. Uh, He was to give his life at the edict of the Father, but in Jerusalem, not in the Galilee region. And that's true. And so once again, verse 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, he has risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him. Verse 3, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, uh, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they counted him, John, as a prophet. Now, we have already seen how John was imprisoned by Herod all the way back in Matthew 4, verse 12. And what had happened was this. Herod Antipas, the Herod of Matthew 14, had paid a visit to his brother Philip in Rome. Antipas was married to the daughter of a Nabataean king, but while in Rome, he fell in love with Philip's wife, Herodias. Herod enticed her to leave Philip and return with him to be his wife, which she agreed to do, and so he brought her home and then immediately divorced his own wife, and married his sister-in-law. Well, that stuff might have flown back then, but you know, John was a straight shooter. And John rebuked Herod publicly for his immorality. Now, something you need to kind of know here, that's going to feed into this message quite a bit. Herod had a fascination with John. 
He was fascinated with John. We read in the Gospels, he would often call for John and they would sit for hours talking. Why was he fascinated with John? We don't know. Uh, it was possibly because of John's ascetic lifestyle. I mean, I think Herod was fascinated how that a man could be content living out in the open country, sleeping under the stars, and eating a very simple diet of locusts and wild honey. See, Herod, on the other hand, was just the opposite. He indulged himself with food, drink, sex, and every other luxury money could buy and still wasn't satisfied. And so John's life, I think, fascinated Herod, and he spent time, much time, talking with John. But now, in the face of this immorality, John condemns Herod, and listen, Herodias as well, publicly, which made Herod mad, but listen to me, it made Herodias furious. She saw red, and the red she saw was John's blood that she wanted spilled. She wanted to get this guy in the worst possible way. And so we read in verse 3 once again, Herod laid hands on, laid hold on John, bound him, and put him in prison for Herodias's sake. I think she was the real power behind the throne, all right? Uh, history tells us that she was a very driven woman. She wanted uh, more and more power for herself and her husband. But she was the real power behind the throne, pressuring her husband to put John to death. Well, verse 5 says, And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted John as a prophet. So instead, Herod arrested John and imprisoned him. And what he did was he took him all the way down to the Dead Sea area. He imprisoned him in the fortress of Machaerus, which is located about four miles east of the Dead Sea, very barren area. In fact, the fortress of Machaerus, there's only, it's on a mountain 3,500 feet high, and the only way you could get to the opening of this prison was you had to come around the mountain on a single path, and there you could enter the prison there, and John was cast into this prison, and history tells us there was one window, but it was high, where John would have to jump up onto the, to grab the ledge with his hands and pull himself up to see outside. And uh, they say that there's um, exactly finger ruts in this sill, uh, not only from John, no doubt, from others who just wanted to get a little glimpse of freedom, you know. For a guy like John, who lived all his life in the great outdoors, this had to be a horrible way to spend the remaining years of his life. But we read in verses 6 and 7, But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. You see, guys, it was Herodias, not Herod, that was really holding a grudge against John. How do we know that? Because Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 19, tells us that. Herodias wouldn't let go of this. Imprisonment was not good enough for her. She wanted John's head, literally. And so she concocted this little plot. She was a very cunning woman. And she plotted with her teenage daughter that the daughter would perform a very seductive and sensuous dance at Herod's birthday feast. This was a dance that was typically performed by slave girls who were then passed around as sexual party favors at these events. And Herodias knew, her husband, and she knew that during his feast he no doubt would get drunk, he would be easily overcome by her daughter's charms, and would probably make a rash promise, because, again, she knew him. And because of the promise, because he would want to save face with the other people at his birthday feast, no matter how outrageous the request 
he would have to grant it. And so beforehand, she worked out with her daughter, look, you perform this very sensual dance. Herod is going to be so taken with you. He is going to promise you whatever you want, which he did. And then what you need to do is ask for John's head on a platter because he won't deny you. He can't. He's going to want to save face with his guests. And so the plot worked perfectly. We pick it up in verse 8. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then the disciples came, John's disciples came, and took away the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. And what was Jesus' response to John's murder? Well, he felt like he needed to get away. John was Jesus' second cousin. Elizabeth and Mary were first cousins. Elizabeth, of course, was John's mom. And so Jesus loved John, and when he found out that he had been murdered, he um, sought to be alone for a while. You know how that goes. you grieving the loss of, a, of a, some of you love. Well, the crowd finds him, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he ministered to them. But I think he also departed in part to a deserted place because he lived according to a divine timetable, as we just have said earlier. And he didn't want to deliberately provoke Herod needlessly. He knew that Herod had agents everywhere, eyes everywhere, and he didn't want to provoke Herod into trying to take him by force to crucify him before his time. And so he just withdrew. Now, you have to understand, from this time on, the ministry of Jesus was directed mostly now toward his disciples, primarily. His goal seems to have been to prepare them for the time that was coming very soon when he would be taken from them. And they would have to carry on now the work he had begun. That was going to require him to build into them these last six months or so in an intensive kind of way, intensive training in preparation for them getting involved in the ministry that he would leave them upon his return to the Father. You have to understand that he said almost nothing more to the nation to convince them he was the Messiah from this point on. Now that's very important because God only gives so many opportunities to repent and to receive his son and eternal life before he withdraws the offer and no longer speaks to a person, whether that be through another believer or to their heart through the Holy Spirit or whatever. This was certainly true of Herod himself. In fact, why don't you turn to Luke 23 once? This was certainly true of Herod himself. For we read in Luke 23, starting in verse 8, now, when Herod saw Jesus, see, eventually he sees him face to face. When? Well, you remember the story. When the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate to have him crucified. And Pilate starts, you know, cross-examining the Lord. Finds out he's innocent, really. Just drummed up charges, uh, trumped up charges by the Jewish leadership. Pilate was no fool. He knew they were trying to railroad Jesus, that Jesus was essentially an innocent man. But when he questioned the Lord and found out he lived up in the Galilee, he said, well, that's great. That's Herod's jurisdiction. Ship him off to Herod. Typical politician, right? Kick the can down the road and let somebody else deal with it. So he ships him off to Herod. Herod finally sees Jesus 
face to face. It says he was exceedingly glad when he finally got to see Jesus Christ. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Oh, goody. Here's this Jesus. Maybe he'll do a little trick for me, a little miracle to keep me amused. Verse 9, Then he questioned him. Herod questioned Jesus with many words. Listen, but Jesus answered him nothing. Nothing. It is interesting that when Jesus met Herod, he had absolutely nothing to say to him, not one word. Now you say, wait a minute. I mean, the Lord didn't even give Herod a chance to reject him before he refused to speak with him. That doesn't seem fair. Look, Herod had already received ample opportunities. Listen, ample opportunities to repent and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior through the many, many times he talked with John the Baptist. Guys, that was John's whole ministry, wasn't it? To call people to repentance, prepare their hearts to receive the Lord? Don't you know that as Herod sat with John, and Herod was probably, John, what's it like to live out in the outdoors and to eat wild honey and this locust and what all about that stuff? Yeah, it's, it's great, King. But let me tell you what you really need, all right? What you really need is to repent, get your life right with the Lord, receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He kept rejecting that. And so now when Herod did finally get to meet Jesus face to face, the Lord had nothing to say to him. The opportunities had ended. His time to receive Jesus had run out. And the Lord's silence was in effect the silence of judgment upon Herod's life. When God goes silent in a person's life, it means the Spirit of God is no longer speaking to them. He's no longer convicting them. He's no longer drawing them to Christ. They've hardened their hearts so much, they said no so many times, he lets them go. He stops talking. When God stops speaking to you, it's often because of a judgment. Now, not always. And if you're a believer, sometimes God does go silent for a while. And sometimes you don't hear his voice like you used to. And I'm convinced most of the time that's designed to get you on your knees more, to seek him with all your heart. But it might be something going on in your life that's not right, something you know is not right. And God is silent until you confess that thing and repent. But for an unbeliever, when God goes silent, it means... He's done trying to win them. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews 3, verse 15, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We only get so many opportunities to repent of our sins and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, as I was meditating over this passage um, yesterday primarily, and of course I've just given you the historical background, and of course that's all important to you know understanding the passage. But Lord, I, I said, Lord, what is it here that we can glean that will help us? Something we can apply into our lives. I know there's more here than just uh, an historical account. Your word, uh, it always speaks to us in some way. And as I'm meditating on this, I believe... The Holy Spirit began to show me that this whole passage, whether we know it or not, is really about the choices we make in life. You say, well, I don't see that here, so you have to help me with that. All right. Well, that's kind of what I see here. I see the Holy Spirit is holding up to us two men, John the Baptist and Herod Antipas, both of which made choices in life that determined 
the course of their life and ultimately the eternal destiny of each of their lives. You know, as you read God's Word, you will see how the Holy Spirit is constantly challenging us to make the right choices, isn't he? As I was thinking about this yesterday, he brought just several scriptures to my mind quickly. I'll, I'll share them with you. Because I want you to understand how that the Holy Spirit through his word is always trying to challenge us, whether you're an unbeliever or even a Christian, to make right choices in your life. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 30 once. 30. Let's give you a few of these. You remember the story. How Moses is one last time recounting the law for the children of Israel in preparation for Joshua leading them into the promised land. And so this is Moses' farewell address to the nation. He won't be entering the promised land because he misrepresented the Lord at the waters of Mirabah. So God says, Moses, you cannot lead my people into the promised land. Joshua, you will take them in. So Moses addresses the nation one last time. And the climax comes really in verse in chapter 30, where we pick it up in verse, 30, verse 15, I should say, where Moses says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go in to possess. Verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against uh, today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose, right? Choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and your length of days. So you understand. Moses is saying, look, God has given to you his laws. His laws are life, but only if you choose to obey them. I am setting before you a life and death choice. If you will obey God, do all that he's commanded you to do, love him with all your heart, he will multiply you, he will bless you, etc. If you choose not to obey the Lord, instead going back to the ways of the pagan deities you worship in Egypt, know this, God will turn against you. Your blessings will dry up. You will be removed from this good land and you will die in your sins. Joshua then leads them into the promised land. Thirty years passes. Now Joshua is an old man. And Joshua is giving the nation his farewell address. You see, in 30 years, and of course when Moses presented this, this uh, choice to the people, what did they say? Oh, yes, yes, we're going to go ahead and do that. Right, because we love God. Okay, great. Joshua leads them in. 30 years passes. They're already now got themselves back into idolatry. They're already worshiping pagan deities. So now Joshua's got to address them one last time and give them or renew the choices that God gave them through Moses. In Joshua 24, if you turn there, again, Joshua's farewell address climaxes in Joshua 24. Verse 14, Therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. That's the choice. You guys have gotten yourselves into idolatry. And I'm in, admonishing you to choose 
God, to choose to obey him and not these pagan gods. Verse 15, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says, look, I can't choose for you guys. I can just present to you the choice. You have to choose who you're going to serve, who you're going to give your life over to. As for me and my house, I know who we're going to serve. We're going to serve the Lord. How about we look at two from the Lord Jesus Christ? Turn to Matthew 6. Two passages that where Jesus challenged us to make the right choice. Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the Lord Jesus Christ can be speaking to unbelievers, but I think he's got believers in mind here. And he's basically saying, look, even if you're saved, you don't have to choose to lay up treasures in heaven. You can still focus on this life primarily. You can still spend most of your time laying up for yourself riches on the earth, material wealth, and so on. But he said, if you do that, understand this. Whatever you lay up on the earth in the way of riches and treasures and so on, they can be taken from you, they can be stolen. Or when you die, you'll have to leave them behind. It doesn't make sense to spend your time laying up treasures on the earth. Rather, choose to use your life to lay up treasures in heaven. How do you do that? By serving God. By serving God and valuing the things of the kingdom of God. Living your life to glorify Him, to serve Him, and to do His work on the earth. As you do that, you're laying up treasures in heaven. And when you die, they will be waiting for you and will be yours for eternity. Blessings, rewards, and so on that God will give to you on that day. Oh, one more. Matthew 16. Starting in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And the idea is this. Jesus said, I'm laying a choice before you today. You can either gain your life now and lose it for eternity. What does that mean? In other words, you can gain your life in the sense that you hold on to it. You use it for your own glory to receive your own pleasures with. Or you can lose it now. By simply, what that means is by giving your life to God to serve Him with your life on the earth, and you will gain life for eternity. The choice is yours. But listen, he said, would it really be worth losing your soul, even if you could gain the entire world, if somehow you became king of the world and possessed every riches it, it had, but you lost your eternal soul? How long can you really enjoy those things for? If you became king of the world, some people think they are king of the world. But if you really became king of the world, 
How long could you really enjoy those things for? 40, 50, 60 years? Is that worth trading eternity for? And so guys, in our text this morning, I just see the Holy Spirit is doing a side-by-side comparison of two very different men. John the Baptist was a simple man who lived as simple a life as anyone could have lived. Herod, on the other hand, was born in royalty and lived in prosperity. His was about as privileged a life as anyone could have lived. John was called by God from his mother's womb to be a Nazarite and a prophet of God. A Nazarite was somebody who was totally consecrated to God. In fact, you can read about a Nazarite in Numbers chapter 6. A Nazarite was to show their consecration to God by not cutting their hair, and he was not to eat anything connected with grapes or the grapevine. No wine, no vinegar, couldn't eat grapes, couldn't eat grape leaves, because grapes were used to produce intoxicants. And a man of God, a Nazareth, was not to be under the influence of alcohol. He was to live his life under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's why nothing from the vine. Now listen to me. Even though John was called to be a Nazareth, which spoke of consecration and a prophet of God, he didn't have to live his life that way. He could have rebelled against the call of God upon his life. I think of Samson. Samson was another one who was called to be a Nazarite from his mother's womb, right? Did Samson live a spirit-filled life? Did Samson live his life for the Lord? No. Samson chose to indulge his flesh, live for himself. He was a very carnal man. You know, we don't have to live up to the life that God's called us to live up to. God gives every one of us callings and blessings to fulfill the work he's calling us to do. We don't have to go that route. We can say, I don't want to serve God. I want to serve myself. Samson did that. John did not. John said, God has called me, and I'm going to live my life for his glory. And it was not an easy life. When you serve God with all your heart, with the degree of commitment John had to his Lord, it's not going to be an easy life. It was a difficult life. A lot of hardships. And eventually, of course, he was martyred by Herod, as we said. But Jesus said of John, there was not a greater man that ever lived, apart from Jesus himself, of course, than John in the eyes of God. Herod, on the other hand, lived a life of privilege and selfishness. He thought nothing of stealing his brother's wife or putting to death anyone who opposed him. He lived his life totally for his own pleasures and rejected, listen, Jesus as his Savior and King. You know why? Because nobody, no one, was going to cause Herod to move off the throne of his life to let anyone sit down, even Jesus. Herod was not going to bow the knee to anybody in this life. He was king. That's how he wanted it. And he was going to live for himself. That's the problem with people today. They want to be the king of their own life. And you can do that because God has given you a free will. But if you live your life as king now to do your own pleasure and do your own thing, someday you will lose it for eternity. If Herod would have said to Jesus, I have waited a long time to see you face to face. And after my many talks with John, your forerunner, I realize I've lived a sinful life. And I want to repent right now. And Jesus, I want to receive you as my Savior and King. Don't you know the Lord Jesus Christ would have embraced him and called him Son? But Herod refused. Whatever happened to Herod? Well, 
history tells us that Herod eventually fell out of favor with Caligula, the emperor of Rome, who banished him and Herodias to Gaul, modern-day France, and ordered that all of his riches be taken from him. Herod was a very wealthy man. But isn't that the way it always is? People want to cling to their riches because they don't, and they don't want to receive Christ because they may have to give up some riches in this life. When eventually, it's all going to be taken from you anyways when you die. Of course, with Herod, it came a little quicker. <laughs> Caligula banished him to Gaul with Herodias, confiscated all of his wealth. And history tells us that Herod and Herodias eventually committed suicide. Folks, choices have consequences. And those consequences are unavoidable. Someone has said, we have the freedom to make our choices, but we do not have the freedom to choose our consequences. I like what uh, Pastor David Jeremiah said along these lines. He said, and I quote, you can choose the kicks, but you can never choose the kickbacks, end quote. You know, many people would say today, (laughs) I'm my own person. I make my own decisions. Well, not entirely. Yes, you make the choices as to what actions you will take. But once you make that choice, you've lost control of what the consequences will be. In other words, you can choose the kicks, but not the kickbacks. Or as the Bible puts it, you will reap what you sow. You can sow whatever you want. you got the freedom to choose what you sow. You do not have the freedom to choose what you reap. Like we have said before, you can choose to put your hand in the fire. But you cannot choose whether or not you get burned. You can choose to jump off a building. But you don't get to choose whether or not you hit the ground. You can choose to smoke cigarettes. But you don't get to choose if you get lung cancer or not. Same is true with sex, sexual promiscuity. People today think, I'm free. I'm making my own choices. And my choice is to sleep with as many people as I can. Well, you can make that choice. But you don't get to choose whether or not you catch a venereal disease like maybe AIDS. And listen to me as we close. Of all the choices you will ever make in life, none, listen, none is more important than whether you're going to use your life to serve God or live for your own pleasures. Or in other words, the only thing that matters is whether or not you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, because that is the only choice that carries with it eternal consequences. Our lives are filled with choices. Most of them really don't matter. This one, it really matters. This is the, And I'll tell you the truth. Satan will keep you busy with the mundane choices to keep you away from the eternal choice. Let me read you one last scripture about a man who had the choice to lose his life on earth by serving God or gaining the whole world but losing his eternal soul. I think you know him. Moses? Let me read to you from Hebrews 11, starting in verse 24. We read about Moses. It says, It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. What is that saying? Just simply this. Moses grew up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Remember how they fished him out of the Nile? 
And uh, then Pharaoh's daughter was bathing, heard the baby. They, before they fished him out, his parents had kind of sent him down the Nile in a little ark basket, you know, lit on it and sent him down there, knowing that Pharaoh's daughter came out at a certain time to bathe every day. And when she came out, she heard the baby crying, opened up this little ark, you know, and there was this beautiful child. And so she adopted the child and raised him as her, as her own. And he was in line, guys. He was in line to be next the next pharaoh of the known world. Egypt was the, was the world power at that time. Moses was in line to become the next king of the world. But Moses realized it's better to suffer persecution with the people of God by serving God than it is to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season. Hey, sin is pleasurable. If it wasn't, we wouldn't get involved with it. But it's short-lived, isn't it? It's short-lived. I mean, look, if Moses would have chosen to satisfy his own desire for pleasure and became the next king, he would have literally gained the whole world. But how long would he have enjoyed it for? How long does any of us enjoy that choice to live for ourselves? What if you could enjoy it for 500 years? Is it worth giving up your eternal soul for? Moses didn't think so. He said, I'd rather suffer now and serve God and enter into a glorious eternity I've got my eyes fixed on what's coming. Now, guys, that was 3,500 years ago that Moses made that decision. Do you think he regrets today making that decision? Do you think in heaven Moses is going, I wish I could have, would have gone for that Pharaoh thing? Of course he's not saying that. But more importantly, 3,500 years from now, what will you feel about the choices that you made in your life here on the earth. Will you be happy with the choices you made if you choose to live for yourself now and do your own thing and enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season? You think 3,500 years from now you'll be happy with that choice? Hey, I've got good news. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Now is your chance. Today you have a choice. Isn't the Lord awesome? He's giving a choice right now to everyone in this room. And if you haven't chosen to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is your time. Well, I'm not ready. Uh, Maybe someday. Guys, that's the biggest lie the devil has ever foisted on the human race. You know what it is? You've got time. But tomorrow isn't promised to anybody, the Bible says. Our lives are like a vapor. They're here today. They're going tomorrow. That's why it says, today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. You may not get another chance. Our God is awesome. He's giving people a chance. Now, if you're a believer, and you've already made the choice to follow Christ, he's already on the throne of your heart. God bless you. But you know, every day becomes a new choice. And I'm convinced, guys, for us who are Christians, it's not a choice between choosing between the good and the bad. I think most of us understand what's bad. We want to stay away from that. You know where the devil gets us? Choosing between the good and the best. There's a lot of things that are not bad to do. A lot of things that are neutral, you know? I mean, you know, coming home, you're tired. The ball game's on. Hey, I'm just going to sit home, watch the ball game. That's not a sin. No, it's not a sin as opposed to going to Bible study, we'll say. 
You're not choosing something bad. But is, is it the best choice you can make to hasten your growth in Christ that you would bear more fruit and be used more powerfully by him for his glory? That's something you have to determine. Our lives are full of choices. We can choose the action, but we cannot choose the consequence. Paul said, I am not going to choose anything that is going to hinder my race for Christ. I'm free. All things are lawful for me. But nothing, I'm not going to choose anything that would hinder my growth and my service for him. That's the kind of choice we as Christians have to make every day. To choose to serve the Lord with all of our hearts today. And may God give everyone here the grace to make the right choice, whatever that choice right now might be, whether to accept Christ or to live for him with more devotion and commitment. That's a choice. I pray God gives everyone the grace to make properly. Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, you do choose, excuse me, that you do offer us choices. Lord, you're not the divine puppet master who just sits up in heaven pulling the strings as we helplessly go through the motions where we have no choice in the matter. No, you gave us a free will. You have said things like, come, let us reason together. You want us to make the right choices. And Lord, give us the grace to make those right choices. We're living at a time when there are so many evil choices that we could make. And even as believers, so many things that are designed to waste time that might not be evil, but they're just not the best choice. Father, if anybody is here who has not received Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray you work in their heart right now that they would come forward and receive you, Lord. For the rest of us, Lord, who are your children, give us grace to love you more and to always choose between the good and the best, to always choose what is best in our walk with you. We thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.